Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Ultimately, I think what you're building is not credibility, it's trust, okay? And trust, folks, is a feeling before it's anything else. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, you want to tell our listeners uh, what's got you distracted right now? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I have a sick puppy. My puppy saga continues. Uh, My puppy is finally old enough to go to doggy daycare. I've been waiting for this day and I can't take her because she is a parasite. And, um, so I'm keeping one eye on her at all times, including, um, during this podcast. So hopefully everything goes well. I also look like total garbage and I'm glad that you asked me about this. That is not true. Raz, I, if I see this video anywhere on anything, Instagram, any kind of promo materials, I'm going to be pissed. Just, just crop me out. You, Steve and Chris, they look great. And just right, right. <laughs> crop me out. All right. Gotcha. Thank you. Well, uh, well, hopefully everything will go go okay with uh, with with the puppy and Thank um, you. and you know and we yeah. can get through the uh, the podcast. But let's welcome Chris Stombaugh. Uh We're so happy to have Chris on the the podcast. Um, Chris is a. Uh, we'll we'll talk more about uh, all of his uh, qualifications and background in a second. But uh, but Chris is just a fantastic lawyer from uh, the law firm of Cello Levitt Gutzler, and you can look him up at DeCelloLevitt.com. That is D-I-C-E-L-L-O-L-E-V-I-T-T.com. Chris, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. And Yvonne, you look fantastic. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. You're my favorite guest already. (laughs) (laughs) You look marvelous. Marvelous. (laughs) Definitely. Well, um, well, we, this, so this uh, the show that we're going to have today. I mean, not only is is uh, as always uh, great trial work by a great lawyer, but um, not for the faint of heart, especially if you don't like flying. In fact, I told my wife who um, doesn't listen to Mark podcast that much, anyways, anymore. Um, but I told her, especially don't listen to this one because she hates flying to start with. And so, if you hate flying, uh, this is our warning right at the beginning. Don't listen to this podcast. Yeah, this episode is not for you. Skip it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, two listeners, but that's great. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> or, I mean, if you look at it another way, maybe listen to it because, um, you know, it's, it's nobody died. It, that's, I mean, that, that that is true. I mean, it does sound like great pilot work. I mean, so, um, you know, that's one thing that we can talk about as the, the, the positive here, but uh, I think the rest of it wouldn't make for a, for a, a, a great fri- flight from Miami to Boston. Um, so, yeah. Um, all right. Well, Chris, let me tell everybody a little bit about your background. So uh, Chris is, um, as I've already said, fantastic trial lawyer. Um, he is sort of at the cutting edge of applying neuroscience uh, techno- uh, neuroscience techniques to trial advocacy and has been doing that for a long time, has been teaching that for a long time. Um, he, Chris is a uh, one of the teachers at the trial school, which uh, is, is a fantastic organization um, based out of Orlando, but involves lawyers all over the country uh, getting together basically to exchange ideas. Um, not only that, but uh, uh, Chris was a uh, faculty at Jerry Spence's trial college. 
um, and is a past president of the Wisconsin Association of Justice. He's barred in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa, and uh, has been a super lawyer um, uh, every year since 2010, and um, has had multiple record verdicts uh, in uh, not always the easiest of venues, uh, especially I have to imagine that uh, trying cases out, you know, in parts of uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota uh, might not always be the easiest uh, uh, venues for uh, especially um, for damages and for and for getting um, uh, getting folks on your side. Um, but, uh, but Chris is a, a fantastic lawyer, has tried cases all over the country. Uh, the case that we're going to be talking about here was tried in federal court, uh, the, the U.S. District Court in Massachusetts uh, back in 2018, and, uh, and was just a great job. So, Chris, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank thank you both so much. I, I'd also like to give a nod to uh, my great uh, trial team with us, who was Elaine Sharp and Randy Hitchcock. They did a, a great job uh, with both at trial and uh, really building this case uh, before I, I came and crashed the party. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> crashed the party, made the party, brought the party. <laughs> exactly. I only, do it, I only do it if it's fun. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, 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 uh, winning certainly helps make it fun. So, <laughs> so true. Yes. As, as they say, it doesn't suck. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, let me talk a little bit about this case. So, uh, the name of the case is Adriana Guzman versus the Boeing company. As I've already said, it was tried in the district court of Massachusetts back in 2018, uh, it involved a uh, incident that happened on October 26, 2010. Adriana was uh, from Costa Rica. She was on her way to Boston, uh, actually as part of a deposition in another litigation that we'll talk about uh, here in a second. Um, but um, they took off from Miami, uh, get up to about 32,000 feet, about 16 minutes into the flight. And then uh, essentially there was a explosive, I wrote it down, explosive decompression event. Uh, and the, um, those were the, the words, <laughs> the most I was allowed to say, right, right. Until I'm putting the pilots when they said we had an explosive decompression. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so it was basically a two foot hole in the upper fuselage. Um, so basically the, it completely decompressed, uh, the lights went out filled with, uh, with smoke, um, and the pilot, uh, as we said, um, doing great pilot work, you know, immediately puts the plane into a dive uh, to get down into a, a lower altitude. Um, but as you might imagine, just a um, uh, extremely frightening event, uh, the, you know, sort of thought going around the plane as the plane is diving, as the uh, compression is lost as it's filling with smoke, as you have the, um, you know, the oxygen come down and still have problems breathing, is that everybody on the plane, including Adriana Guzman, thought they were going to die. Um, and, um, and so it's just a, a, a terrifying event. Um, and this case uh, is essentially, the, my understanding, Chris, is that there was a number of cases brought initially, and uh, most, uh, all of them got settled except for Adriana's, and Adriana's case went to trial, and essentially the um, claims for uh, her injuries were that she was uh, had decompression sickness, 
she had post-traumatic stress disorder and then a major dis- depressive order uh, disorder, ma- major depressive disorder. And, um, and Boeing had agreed that they would be responsible for the damages. And I, and I'm trying to use my, uh, words carefully there because that became an issue during the trial of whether or not they were quote unquote negligent, but they were at least claiming that they were responsible for the damages. Um, if, if proven. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so, uh, after a nine day trial, um, with multiple objections. And I even wrote down uh, at one point in your opening, you said that the courtroom is the only place in America to get justice and they objected. And I was kind of thinking, what, what, what is the objection to that? (laughs) But, uh, but they objected to that too. Um, so anyways, after fantastic work, um, it was a two, $2.2 million verdict. Uh, and then the jury also decided that, um, that she didn't mitigate or hadn't, let me read off the verdict form um, that she had hadn't made reasonable efforts to mitigate her damages. And so they reduced the verdict by 726,000. So down to uh, almost 1.5 million. Um, and then uh, because it was in Massachusetts, the prejudgment interest of 12% applied. So the in judgment, I think resulted in $2,271,651 and 60 cents. Um, the and, left hand takes away the right hand. Gets that's, right. that's right. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, uh, and by all accounts for the, for what was being claimed was, uh, just a, a tremendous verdict. In fact, part of the appeal that, um, Boeing filed was that obviously, um, there was, you know, error in this trial because the verdict was so big, it, it you know, definitely couldn't be that big. That, so, um, go ahead. enough, if I could, if I could jump in here, yeah. uh, that is, that is not the first time this has happened to me and it has happened right. a lot in rural America where they just cannot conceive of damages being that large. And I can tell you, and, uh, once you, you head over seven figures on a, on a case, for example, where it's, um, uh, you know, relatively small, uh, relatively small, uh, county, less than you know, 50,000 people, and they've never seen anything like that happen. Obviously, you did something wrong. You must have done something wrong. Right, right. So this must be subject to uh, remitted or it must be subject to a new trial, because obviously you said something that that caused people uh, to lose their their rural uh, conservative American senses and go crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and, and I, we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit. I mean, you know, what I was really impressed with, not, I mean, not only the whole trial strategy, but just, you know, the uh, amount of work that went into proving up, uh, you know, the damages for Adriana. And, you know, when somebody says post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, that they, they can sort of just file that away and, you know, how bad can it be? Right. Uh, but it really is uh, so bad that it, it affects every aspect of her life. Um, you know, and in, in fact, even the judge who uh, wrote a very extensive order upholding the verdict, um, you know, uh, went through some of the testimony, including the sister's testimony, uh, which she found to be very persuasive that, um, you know, that, that Adriana went from the person who the family could depend on, who would take care of the family, um, to the person that the family then basically had to care for because she couldn't do anything. Um, so just uh, really, really great work. I, I want to mention, you know, and we'll talk about the defenses as we go on, but but part of the argument here to start out with was 
that the defense was claiming that um, this uh, PTSD and depressive disorder wasn't caused from this event because she had been a graduate student at MIT um, and had gotten her master's degree in civil engineering, was a PhD candidate, and then essentially um, had to leave the PhD program because she um, wasn't getting everything done that she was supposed to. Uh, she had even taken a medical leave during part of that. And then uh, MIT filed a lawsuit against her uh, to get uh, their student loans back. She countersued against them uh, for not letting her finish the PhD program. And, um, and that was the case that she was going up to Boston for when this happened was she was going to give a deposition in the case uh, against MIT. Um, well, you sure so, love when things are clean. Don't yes. You? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I kind of wonder, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of bouncing around here, but I do kind of wonder how the defense thought that was going to play. I mean, I guess in Boston, people understand that MIT is a premier institution and might be a stressful place to be. And, you know, especially, um, you know, since she had taken a medical leave and, um, you know, was in a ongoing lawsuit with with MIT. So, you know, that's sort of one of the first hurdles you had to get over. Well, it was a hurdle that they were really uh, they were really trying to connect, despite the fact that uh, the events had happened five years before this this uh, in-flight mishap, which is probably the nicest way I could put it. Um, so they she had 60 months of life going on between the MIT issue and uh, or largely the MIT issue, and then uh, this incident. Uh, so they had trouble. And, and her reasons for going back to, Co to Costa Rica or having the medical leave, her mother had had a stroke, her father had nearly been beaten to death in that time frame. So it's a, it's a situation where clearly she's the, uh, the oldest daughter. She, she, she has a role, she felt her role uh, in her family, she needed to be, be there. But what was ironic, and you, you, I, I don't know if uh, it was in some of maybe the opening or the close, but one thing that was really interesting was that she brought somebody from Costa Rica who made a $300,000 donation to MIT while she was a student there. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think it was maybe a year and a half before she was sued for about half that amount uh, for her uh, her, her student debt. So it's, uh, sort of, uh, you know, the aspect of insult to injury. And so, uh, but the, obviously they wanted to focus on that. They did, uh, unfortunately at the end, it, uh, it didn't really help them that their expert didn't really read into their trial uh, strategy on that. And we waited, uh, for close to really, uh, labor that point dramatically. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, th that's interesting. You mentioned that, that the, uh, that, that their own expert hadn't even tied that in. And, you know, it's funny how sometimes that happens that the, the defense counsel forgets to talk to their own experts, or at least doesn't listen to what their experts are saying. Well, quite clearly they, I think they would, uh, they would say that the reason for that was because, uh, the plaintiffs had a, uh, last minute, 11th and 11th and a half hour trial strategy change, which uh, scrambled uh, scrambled their eggs a little bit. Yeah, let, let, I, that's a good place to start because uh, I did read that article. So your economic loss claim. So the so the damages that you ended up getting here would be essentially emotional distress and pain and suffering from these three 
um, disorders that I just uh, named, the post-traumatic stress disorder, the major depressive disorder, and then decompression sickness. And I, I didn't mention that, you know, with all of these comes, you know, headaches, malaise, fatigue, nightmares, fears, insomnia, uh, problems with concentration, panic attacks, you know, just crying for no reason at all, or uh, just uh, flashbacks, just a, a multitude of things that she was that she was going through. But so you made the decision before trial to not pursue an economic loss um, um, uh, recovery. So talk about that decision and, and the thought process there. Well, okay. So this, this happened um, over Easter weekend um, back in 2018, uh, meaning the, the trial was going to start the Monday after Easter. So on Friday night, we were still deposing the defense's main economic expert in, in a very long you know, deposition. Um, what the defense wanted to do is they wanted to base all of their character attacks, um, cross-examination, and a lot of this based on the economic case because of the uh, delay that uh, she, uh, that our client had in filing certain tax returns. In fact, five years of her returns by court order here in, uh, not here, I happen to be in uh, Madison, Wisconsin right now, but mm -hmm. in, in Boston, there'd been an order that all of them had to be filed by a particular date. So all these tax returns had been filed for the uh, previous, uh, I think five years maybe. So, um, and so the defense largely was going to clearly make this a case where it was all about um, attacking her character through through the economic claims. Um, and I believe she had quite legitimate economic claims. She had a she's part of a very successful company with her brother in Costa Rica. Um, but the accounting systems uh, being used there would just say aren't gap, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and and it was going to be an unbelievable burden to have to deal with those issues all through this. And so uh, we decided um, that uh, after I was done with that deposition on Friday, we thought about it. There were a lot of people who had to have buy-in, uh, most of all our client, because this was the major part of her losses, I mean, economically that you could claim. And so we we looked at it, we thought about, you know, the simplification of the case. Um, I, I can't deny that Sun Tzu crossed my mind when I was thinking about, you know, uh, doing something the exact opposite of what your opponent thinks will happen, appear where they are not. <laughs> okay. And, and also make a focus different than what they have put all of their eggs. So they put essentially all of their eggs in this, you know, um, cross-examination basket, impeachment basket. And so uh, we thought, all right. We're going to do this. Now, there is a funny story behind that, by the way. Um, this decision, uh, we finally made it, uh, got the client's approval Saturday night before Easter Sunday. Um, and I was at Elaine Sharp's home with um, uh, my associate, uh, uh, Tiffany Wonderland was there, and um, Randy uh, had been there. And we were going through it, and uh, Elaine is uh, from England. And she has a lot of interesting books. One of these was a joke book, and it was a full joke book from the 1930s. It was full of all terrible, terrible, just jokes that you can never tell in 2021 ever. But I was commenting on the book, 
So she she writes the title of the email to defense counsel announcing we are going to be waiving all the economic loss claims. But it said, unfortunately, because there was a distraction there and she typed what was ever on her mind at 11 o'clock at night, it said, it said the, the email to defense counsel said um, the waiver of uh, Adriana Guzman's economic jokes. Okay. <laughs> Literally that went to defense counsel, by the way, Easter Sunday was April 1st. Right. <laughs> nice. okay. So this is Saturday before April Fool's Day, which is also, I believe, I think was also um, Easter Sunday. And it said a, something like, uh, you know, waiver or for dismissal of Adriana Guzman's economic jokes. And it came in there. It wasn't as part of the text, of course, but it was the title. So they, of course, don't call us. They call the other co-counsel and said, what's going on here? And he was like, I think I need to check back with them. <laughs> so <laughs> the situation we had to clarify, yes, this is real. This is not an April Fool's joke. This is this is that kind of thing. But this is what happens. You get a little punch drunk and you're working 18, 20 mm-hmm. hours a day. And uh and certain things seem funny to you, and then and then you uh, conflate them with the conspiracy email. And that that's exactly what happened. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial texts, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life. 
videos, they do settlement documentaries, they do demonstratives, and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. Well, apparently uh, the defense didn't find it funny and neither did the judge because it seemed like uh, there was a de- they, they, the defense asked for a two day delay to the start of the trial. I think the judge gave a one day delay. But uh, how, how, how did it go uh, presenting that to both them and to the other side? It, it, it seemed like every, they were at least trying to make a much bigger deal about the fact that you were no longer seeking this portion of damages. Well, you know, it, it goes under. I think I think they doth protest too much because I recall that on the Sunday when we had a, we had got on the phone with them the next day on Easter, um, uh, we had a conversation with them and it was there wasn't fury and all, all of this stuff. It was, it was a civil conversation about, okay, this is what's not, we're not seeking this. And so therefore you should, you know, you should cut off your experts. We are not going to bring in our experts, et cetera. And we're, we're going to simplify this case. And in fact, that's what we intended to do, but it was not an easy decision, but I think strategically it was right for all the reasons because of, I mean, there's baggage and then there's just baggage. And if you can excise that tumor from your case, you should do it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it, you know, it, it, it does simplify it, but it, uh, it's, it's funny that they would, uh, be upset about you waiving, you know, a portion of your damages. Um, so, you know, it, it, not only it, that, we didn't seek medical expense, any of her, any of her medical expenses either, which, which is the norm for, for us, uh, and the norm for me. Um, and, and in fact, it was this case was cited by Chambers, I think, out of England. You know, just is this part of a growing trend in America? You know, in terms of, well, I certainly hope so because I think claiming uh, economic, well, I mean, in particular, medical expense and other economic damages many times is the biggest mistake plaintiff lawyers make ultimately. Yeah, yeah, you because of the anchoring effect that it can have on uh, bringing down the down a verdict. It's just one of that's just one of them. There's also you have a number of very conservative jurors who are who will only give you economic damages. Uh, and and if you give them that choice, they will they will settle into that and they'll think, OK, you're fine. You're we're even. OK. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's an anchoring effect. There's uh, but it, it's also people tr- building up, trying to build up from that number. But also, I think as a heuristic, as they say, a mental shortcut. In the cognitive science world, it, it's a problem because it keeps people from thinking and people don't want to think. Not even in, in fact, you, you talk about very intelligent jurors, uh, uh, you know, they don't want to think any harder than they're required to think either. And if you make it easy for them, they will take the easy route. Just my just my my thoughts. No, I, I I think I mean it's definitely um, something that a lot of people have done now, and and it's a, a growing trend. And I and I think in most cases it is the right tr- the the right thing to do. Um, and I think it also goes back to the whole credibility analysis that we talk about so much on the show. That especially if a jury, even if, you know, even though insurance is never brought up, even though you know a lot of people are going to know or think that you know, your bills have been paid one way or the other. And so why are you sitting there asking us for them? And so it, it sort of undercuts your credibility with the jury. 
And it also prevents the defense from talking about reasonableness and necessity. I mean, which is which is where they all they like to get in these in these fights. Well, did you really need that that treatment? Did you really did you really need that expense? And then you you just you've you know jettisoned that as well. But I think I've done it since 2007 is when I started. And I think there's been one time when I did claim it and it was because it was over seven figures. Right. Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, I do think you have to be brave to do it. And I, like just reading about the case, I, you know, thinking also about how brave your client would have to be, um, you know, not just to go along with that decision, which is you explain, there's a lot of logic behind making that decision, but also um, just in general, a case like this, I think about, you know, when reading the the judge's order, reading some of the stuff that was talked about at trial, how it's somebody who's already so, you know, y- uniquely damaged and, and, and vulnerable to certain things, then having to dig into those things, having those things attacked, you know what I mean? Like you've already got the stigma of going to therapy and then you're going to, or taking medication. As a Costa Rican as well. I mean, the, the stigma is so large in parts of Latin America. And that's, in fact, what uh, her treating psychologist is in Costa Rica, Dr. Cambronero, she were, you know, she she said, listen, you know, that's that's the reason why she would come in the back door. She didn't want people. And it, as a businesswoman, as somebody who was involved in the political scene uh, bef- uh, immediately before this, somebody who who really was a, a patriot, you know, in her own country, she, she just didn't want, um, want that kind of, uh, notoriety. Yeah. yeah. And then, so to even have that attacked and I, I don't want to get too off track because I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but just to say, you know, you, I think it takes a lot of bravery both to take that approach as a lawyer, but then also as a client to, 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 to be like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave these blackboard numbers out and, and focus on something that's really going to be on me to articulate, or at least I, I would feel as a client that was on me to articulate. Did you really bring the case so you could so you could get medical bills? Is that why you're here? Right, right. <laughs> well, right. Is, that, is right. that why we're here? I don't think that's why you brought the case in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So talk about, uh, I mean, so talk... Talk us through a little bit about how you built the damages in this case, because there was quite a bit of evidence uh, put on not only from, you know, what happened at at the event itself and how in the 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 fright that happened there, then sort of, you know, what she went through um, and then and then how it was built up through, um, you know, the you know, her treatments through, you know, with psychiatrists, psychologists and, and from the other experts that you had, as I guess, as well as addressing the issues of that they were claiming she wasn't seeking enough of this or seeking it fast enough uh, as a, as a way of mitigating her damages. Well, the defense is never happy. Uh, Let's start with that. Uh, Either, either you're over treating or you haven't treated enough. And, and so you have that issue with her. She really didn't treat with psychiatrists. Okay. Uh, She had had history with antidepressants that made her feel ill uh, when she had tried it in Boston many years before when she was, uh, in her program. Uh, so she knew that that was a problem for her. If you think uh, seeing a psychologist in Costa Rica, at, at least during that time, was going to be uh, an issue, uh, a psychiatrist just takes that and puts it on steroids. So I think, and the jury did what they did uh, relative to her, maybe her mitigation. Um, and I and I appreciate that. Uh, 
I think they understood why she did it, but I think, you know, in terms of the building of damages though, which you're where, uh, where you're coming from, I think part of it is that they needed to understand what it was like to be in that plane. Fortunately, there were other people who had already testified. Um, there were people who testified live. Um, and, uh, there were quotes, uh, in my, I think actually in the judge, uh, Dean's, uh, 55 page opus on the case, um, that, uh, that indicated just how harrowing it was. And, but it was, it, it was a double dip, if you will. The first bad experience was at 32,000 feet when literally all the oxygen left the plane within a couple seconds. So this whoosh sound, it was the oxygen leaving. And then the, the, um, you know, uh, the masks come down. Um, and, but slowly, right. I, I think, can we agree that anybody on this plane would say it's too slow? Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> was that going to be fast enough for them, but whatever. Um, and so they all thought they were going to die. They were all screaming and, and that happens and they're engaging in a dive from 32,000 to 10,000 feet. Why 10,000? Because 10,000 is the ceiling at which oxygen can enter in breathable oxygen can enter back in. To the to the plane uh, without without um, uh, relying on you know the ambient things and plus it got them down to essentially to pressure, um, but it was not good because it had the exact opposite effect. In fact, what my favorite uh, my favorite um, uh, toy that I used I was a, a diet uh, co- uh, a can of diet coke that I used uh, to express what was happening. And if you understand diving, this is the exact opposite, but you get the bends either way, either from coming up too fast or going down too fast. Uh, if you're not depressurized. So I'm in front of the jury, I'm shaking this thing like mad with (laughs) diet Coke can, which is unopened, which I then promised, but man, you know, if you want to get people's attention, that will do it. They were there. Right. like white on rice on that thing. And so, and, and that was what was happening. Uh, if you opened it up, that would be all the nitrogen leaving uh, the tissues in your body and causing damage essentially. So we got them there, but, but it was, it was really the other people and the idea of people so desperate to get off the plane at the, at the end that they are climbing over seats. They cannot wait. They're not standing in line there. And I, I, I think I said, I said like an orangutan, like, right literally in the zoo, just sort of just going. Okay. And it didn't matter, uh, who was in front of them. They were, they were running for their lives, even though they were safe on terra firma. Yeah. Well, and you, and you described, uh, very well, you know, how Adriana was afterwards where she, she was talking to somebody and just in sort of a monotone that she felt numb, you know, and then basically, you know, uh, she was clearly experiencing shock, yeah. uh, you know, and then goes and kind of walks and gets on this next airplane that then takes them. You, and I forgot to say, wow. it, it, they it, landed in Miami. They they switch airplanes and then they take that one to Boston. And, it, and from what I understand, that flight was like complete silence. Just like, you know, nobody talking to anybody. Part of the problem, though, was uh, as, as uh, Paul Buza, uh, our our neurologist, the expert in hyperbaric stuff and, and, and the decompression. So it said, the real problem here is that you really shouldn't get above, I think it was either, he said 500 or 5,000 feet again. And and for those reasons, because you could be doing more damage. And yet America had these people on there before they could back out, essentially everybody's back on this plane. But of course, when she gets to Boston, what happens? 
She gets off that plane, she gets in maybe 2 a.m., something like that, to where she's staying at a friend's house uh, there on, and then she doesn't leave for three weeks, cannot force herself to do anything. And she has a deposition the next morning, if you can imagine having been through this and trying to sit through a legal deposition about a, about a bill. Right. Yeah. And, um, and amazing and of course i think i think boeing was trying to say hey she functioned well during her deposition like that's obviously i guess that's the spin you got to give it yeah yeah exactly um yeah and and i i think you had one of uh some of the other passengers on the plane test testify including i think the person who was sitting next to her that um she actually reconnected with after they got on the ground and sort of consoled each other and it sounded like that he he was he was very helpful he and his family were very helpful in taking care of her during those three weeks absolutely she she went back there she spent some time with them and uh i i even i think i cited in my uh the opening of the close i cited my angelou you know she doesn't even remember what was said i mean it's, but you know people don't remember that they they remember um, they don't remember what you do or say sometimes, but they always remember how you made them feel. And right. she felt safe there uh, compared to the kind of a little bit of a frat house environment that she was going back to. In fact, there was a Halloween or the, not Halloween. There wouldn't have been a Halloween party, but there was some party that was going on during this this time uh, time frame in her bedroom, of course, was uh, was the floor there. And she's on an inflatable mattress and and just but could not bring herself to leave. I mean, the idea that this is not a very profoundly affected person yeah. uh, is, um, it, it, I mean, obviously they tried. I, and I think it actually was a Halloween party because you told the story about her uh, having some costume that just had a large red dot on it or something. And that that, that she had borrowed from somebody and because she had been advised that she should still go, she should go to a party, try and have some fun or something. Yeah. Try to, you know, try to have some fun. Part of the issue, she only had, she only really had a very limited set of clothing. She was not <clears throat> to be in Boston more than a, a couple of days. So um, from, did you have her in the courtroom the whole time? And I guess, how did she do on the stand um, when, when she did testify? She did wonderfully. Um, I think it was a shock to Boeing. Uh, the, there is more written about a, a couple of photographs that, that show her in the months before this incident in Costa Rica being involved, uh, meeting uh, meeting dignitaries on the behalf of the president of Costa Rica, uh, chief justice of the Supreme Judicial Court, I think of Chile, um, being uh, with uh, seen with the president of of her country in in Chile, who she supported, and other rallies where she looks and she looks amazingly happy and well adjusted for somebody who is in just terrible shape right before this uh, this air mishap happened. Right, right, right. And, the lack of curiosity on the part of Boeing in terms of what happened during those years is amazing because they they had complained that we didn't have the photograph. And then the court, if you follow uh, Judge Dean's opinion, they'd had this twice before uh, many months, uh, you know, uh, even before her last, I think her last, uh, her last deposition, I think she's deposed three or more times. Um, and Chris, I was, I was curious when that came up at the time, did you, cause you were brought in later, did you know that that photo had already been produced or were you sort of having this moment like, oh shit, what am I going to, you know, how am I going to handle this? And then you found out later it had already been produced. Well, 
it was on our exhibit list and it was the only photograph that was on our exhibit list. I think I, I could be wrong and it, there has to be more, but, but it was the only one like that. And so it's just like, I think that they had put so many eggs in the economic damages um, impeachment basket that the idea of looking deeply into, well, how was she doing in the, in the years after she left, left MIT to here that didn't involve her work, but involved her activities. Um, they just, it, it blew right. It blew right past them. And so when they are hearing this testimony coming out of Adriana's uh, mouth, who the judge found very credible as well, indicated as such, it, it was a revelation. It was a huge chunk of the case that they had no idea about because they simply lacked curiosity. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this. But now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. You know, a big part of their defense in this case was basically to claim that she was either exaggerating or uh, or lying. And then I, and then I like and I, I do want to make sure we talk about this, this idea of secondary gain where you're you're lying, but you don't know that you're lying. You don't mean to lie, but you actually are lying um, so that you can get money out of the thing. Um, sure. But, you know, I mean, we, th that is to me. And I, I, I guess I understand that defendants have to defend whatever they're going to do. But you know, when you have a witness that comes off so credibly, a family that comes off so credibly, and then you're going to essentially suggest to the jury, well, they're just making it all because they want to get money. is on, such a uh, such a on, tough defense. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how it came up. Right. I mean, it wasn't during the direct examination. It was during redirect after cross. So the idea of secondary, there was nothing in the cross examination which addressed this. Um, their cross, of course, is or their redirect is limited to issues on cross. 
there is nothing in his report on these things, nothing in the multi-hour deposition that I uh, that I took of him that that really that addressed this uh, as a as a at least a leading issue other than tangentially. So um, it was done in a, I believe, uh, it seemed like a calculated way. I think the judge thought so too. The question was improper. Um, and in fact, I think the way that Judge Dean described that my objection, which overruled, saw more coming than she did in us in uh, in overruling my objection. <laughs> so, yeah. and then and then it's all out, and then it's like, okay, you you people just caused another explosion, if you will, in this courtroom. Uh, and another, which was of course unnecessary, and uh, and showed, I think, desperation. I mean, it became a desperate act. The, the idea that the plaintiff had uh, no credibility and for reasons uh, which had everything to do with what they were intending to do and were not able to do, uh, they felt uh, the case had slipped away from them. In my opinion, this is my interpretation. That's just, you know, others, others, your, your mileage may vary on that. Yeah. Well, and let's just be clear for our listeners in case they don't know what secondary gain means. And if they hear some defense lawyer bring it up to uh, some sort of some doctor in a deposition, basically what they're saying is, is that secondary gain is code for exaggerating or lying about your injuries so you can get damages in your case. Uh, They'll say that we're not saying you're lying. We're saying you're doing this unconsciously and you have a motive, you have some sort of compensatory motivation to make it sound like it's got some sort of science behind it. But it's basically what they're doing is calling your client a liar. So just keep that in mind. Or 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 I think the the most kind version of what they're saying is, is that your your client wants secondary king can also be that he or she gets attention from making this claim, that that they get some satisfaction from people caring. You know, it's it's even broader than the economic part, but the way that it was done, the way that it was laid and uh, uh, the uh, severe backtracking that the defense was doing after the court really uh, handed it to them, um, uh, I think speaks for itself. Yeah, and it, it sort of also, you know, it, in cases like this, the defense always has the ability to just kind of go in there and fall on the sword and say, you know, look, we're really sorry this happened. You know, we just want you to be fair. And and I, oftentimes I think that's the best defense oh. they got. But they yeah, just they were, completely they lose stuff. that. They yeah. were stepping up. Uh, they they kept claiming that they were right. stepping up. And <laughs> right. they regretted that eventually because it made it it made it too easy. I'm I'm a, I'm you know I'm kind of a bumper sticker guy. So you know I heard that in opening, and that's exactly I was thinking. Okay, this 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 will come back to haunt them because they weren't stepping up in any right. Um, you know, one question I wanted to ask you because it, and maybe it's just a jurisdictional thing. It, it, it's unusual here in Georgia, so that's why I'll mention it. But you, but you tried this case in front of a magistrate judge in federal court. That that I'll just say in Georgia, that's unusual. I know in other jurisdictions, it's not necessarily that unusual. Is, was there any sort of uh, decision process there, or is or is it sort of usual in Boston to? that the magistrate judge is sort of on the, the trial wheel along with the other district court judges? Well, they are. And in fact, in many jurisdictions, uh, we get uh, notices, um, even in, in here in Wisconsin, we get a notice um, as to whether you agree to have the case tried by a magistrate judge. So so many times you're you're asked to opt out. I think that's true in the Northern District. I'm, I'm, we're in the Seventh Circuit here. 
Um, but uh, it's true in Illinois as well, I believe, uh, another case I have going now. Uh, and, and many times, the you know, these are very able, hardworking judges. Um, I think uh, those decision was made long before I got involved in the case. So uh, I took the judge I had at yeah. that time. But I, 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 we were certainly very happy with her. She's an extremely hardworking jurist. Yeah. Well, and, and you could just see from the order that she wrote after the case was over, uh, upholding the verdict. I mean, how much, how, how, first of all, how well she was paying attention, you know, and how much time and effort she put into, um, you know, thinking out her rulings. Uh, and as you said, I can't remember how long that order was, but it was over 40 pages. I know that. 55. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 55. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just say, a, a, you know, fortunately, at least it said who won on the first page, you know, oftentimes going, you're racing to the back to see what happens with certain orders, but, but it was very interesting. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily agree with her characterization of my style versus the defense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I should mention that, uh, she characterized the plaintiff's lawyer, meaning you as being uh, flamboyant and the defense lawyer as being, uh, methodical. Um, right. And I, I thought most of that was because, um, uh, I have a pulse. Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and first of all, I'm I'm, I'm joking. Uh, the defense had able, very able lawyers, um, and who were extremely hardworking uh, based on the motion practice. If you go get, go there, uh, they uh, they were very zealous advocates for Boeing, but the the style was a very significant contrast. I think the court called uh, maybe also called me dramatic at times, but but. Um, but flamboyant, yeah, that's hard to live down. I've always said what Rodney uh, Rodney Jew, uh, uh, the great trial consultant, uh, always taught us, which is compared to what. So that's right. the issue. <laughs> well, I, th I think I think that's what happens when you shake up a can of Diet Coke in in front of the jury and threaten to open it. <laughs> I didn't open it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I promised. In fact, if you decide, to, Judge, I'm not going to open it. I promise. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I did. I did have these like awful like uh, flashbacks to to various trial times you know, when you're just so exhausted and sick of it in terms of when I was reading the transcript of the post-trial motions and then the order, but especially the transcript, because it clearly seemed to be one of those trials where they file motions in limine on all this stuff, including stuff that you already can't do under the law. You don't need a motion on it. The law says what you can and can't do in closing argument, for example. But oh. they, you know, they create all these you know, landmines or pitfalls that they hope you'll fall into. And then it just makes for the most brutal torture. What to, like I was tortured just reading the transcript of the post-trial yeah. hearing, <laughs> the post-trial motions. It yeah. was, it was interesting. A lot of them of course were about me and uh, what I had done in opening or close or, or, or that sort of thing. But I love that the judge saw through, uh, saw through it, the, the typical reptile stuff and, um, obviously, having taught uh, taught reptile for uh, a number of years, uh, that's that's something that bedevils uh, me at times. But it bedevils everyone. They get these reactions, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I think uh, uh, I think the judge saw through a lot of it. And in fact, the the happiest thing, other than the result that I saw in there, was that she she rejected the defense and said she regretted saying that uh, the defense had been ambushed because I they weren't. Uh, we 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 would have been foolish to try that case uh, the way they wanted us to try that case. Right. Um, and we just uh, we we refused to do it. But it did take it took the courage to tell your client and to convince your client that um, 
you know, one in the hand here uh, on this is worth well more than two two in the bush where you are going to get, you know, roasted over, over time on that. And so I think we largely avoided that and actually probably saved five days of trial. Right, right. Yeah. One of the other things that she, uh, and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but she had ruled out um, bringing up that that, that the event had caused some uh, cognitive disorders. Um, but but then there was an argument by the defense that you know when when you made the argument, which I which I think is absolutely right and supported by the evidence, which is that PTSD affects you in such a profound way that it can be essentially the same as, you know, affecting your ability to concentrate and, and to, you know, think effectively. Um, but then the defense, of course, tried to say, well, you've ruled out cognitive disorders as a, from a causation standpoint, but now they're trying to bring it back in. How, am I getting that right? How I'm explaining that? I think you're, you're, you're getting really close if you're not. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I think part of the issue was, was that uh, our expert, Jillian uh, Biswas, uh, you know, board-certified forensic psychiatrist uh, clearly indicated that PTSD changes how your brain works, okay? And so um, what you have is changes in one of at least your perspective of things, your your ability to do things spatially, and she's an engineer, that's a big deal. Um, uh, uh, as well, I think uh, we cited either either we did or the court did, I'm trying to recall now, but cited uh, what Dr. Marmar had agreed about that there are changes in the brain as a result of having these issues. Um, and uh, a, way, a way that I've described it more recently is, is that uh, whether you strike your head uh, in a mild traumatic brain injury or uh, you, you have PTSD as a result of being there, both are traumatic, but don't necessarily have to be kinetic. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so it's a traumatic injury. It, it is affecting you uh, and your brain changes in ways that are not positive And in terms of your, how you perceive things, including being linked to depression. Uh, so that, that I think that the research is, is out there, but just be, you know, it, it can be traumatic, but it doesn't have to be kinetic. Yeah. Well, the same is true when you deal with pain, uh, overwhelming pain that can cause all the same types of things where you can't, you can no longer concentrate, you can't focus because you're just dealing with such pain. Uh, Pain makes you selfish. selfish. Um, And not, not as a character flaw, but you have to constantly manage Mm -hmm. the barking dog that you have. And, and that's the thing. And it makes, this is the focus and every decision you make is, is going to be uh, through that. Is it worth it for me to do this if it's going to cost? Right. right. So um, I wanted to ask: Did you? <clears throat> I, I, I tried to read through, and I didn't see. Did you suggest a number to the jury, or and how did you lead them to your your verdict? To all that justice. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, this was a first on me. Okay. In in Massachusetts and in this court, in state court as well, I believe. The defense goes first. I saw that. I thought I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it was. <laughs> the court put it to me this way: "It's your choice, uh, and it's not just me. Obviously, I had um, Elaine Sharp, Randy Hitchcock. We we were all working closely, but I called my other trial lawyer friends as well into this because here's what she gave me: she said, if you give a number, 
I will give the defense a five-minute rebuttal. Meaning, I would be I would be sandwiched between yeah. two defense arguments. Yeah. So here was the issue: Are you going to ask for a number and give the defense five minutes of rebuttal, or are you going to let the defense know the night before that you are not going to give a number, and therefore uh, you you get the last word, and then the jury does what they do, and so almost to a person almost to a person, they said, well, you got to give a number. Come on. You know, you got to give a number. And I just, you know, I was seriously tempted along that line. Yeah. yeah. Here's what happened. Uh, I was talking to my now partner, uh, Bobby DiCello. He said, Chris, I'm just going to give it to him. I'm not saying what he's saying is true. But he said, I know how you can connect with people. You, you can do this without giving them a number. And you can do it. It was the biggest risk I felt. <laughs> you think about waiving these things. As yeah, being yeah. This, this was the biggest risk for me personally, because I had, you know, when I, when I started waving, you know, specials, it, the first one was on a $9,000 special. The next one was very similar. The next one was 120,000. And then it's, you know, it's gone up. I kind of built my confidence at stages. Right. This was the whole case. And have I given them, uh, a model. And one of the things I did in this case was, uh, was called the box close, Jerry Spence, uh, close. And, uh, I did it without numbers, but I talked about just sort of those relative value things. Um, and, uh, so I took Bobby DiCello's advice. Bobby's a fantastic lawyer, uh, unbelievable verdicts in his own life. He and I've taught together for years now, long before I even joined DiCello Gutzler. Uh, but I had, I said, okay, I'm going to believe in what you're saying I could do more because I didn't feel I could do that at the time. But I said, okay, let's do it. And that's what happened. I, I did that for the first time in my life and uh, I didn't live to regret it. Very nice. It, and I guess just clarifying what the judge had told you, that would include making any sort of per diem type argument as well. Uh, like if you had made that, then they, she would also let them rebut. Of course, if I, if I gave them a number, yeah, uh, I was I was giving them a rebuttal. Now, uh, that's all I have to say about that. I mean, <laughs> much I feared the five minute rebuttal. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I, but they would have had all night to prepare for it. So that, right. that thing, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't something uh, I had to make that decision like by six p.m. Uh, or something uh, the the night before. And so, and I'm so glad. I mean, Elaine uh, Sharp, Randy Hitchcock, our team. Uh, you know, they, they had a lot of faith in me to allow me to do that. And, um, at, at least that part, and we'd gotten this far together and well, let's do this and let's trust this jury really trust them. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and then did you get a chance to talk to any of the jurors afterwards? No, I didn't actually, this was, this was a, a sort of strange situation. I'd been, I'd been in Boston forever and I had been, uh, away from home. So we waited, uh, quite a while and I just decided at the last minute, I'm going to catch a plane home because uh, I had no idea this was going to go in the next day or something like that. So I'm sitting on the tarmac in Boston and I get a text uh, across, you know, ooh, you know, 2.2 million, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, is this a joke? Question mark. You know, is, this, <laughs> is this one of, you know, Wait. <laughs> economic jokes? You know, Wake, sort of, yeah, waving the economic <laughs> jokes. Yeah. Yes. And so, uh, so we were like, no, that's right. But of course, 
the delay, it took 10 or 15 minutes for them to get back because there's pandemonium and all this in the courthouse. And I'm waiting for a response to, are you serious? You know, not that, not that I was shocked, but it was like, I was getting it, you know, via text. Uh, and then of course we got in the air and then I couldn't talk to anybody (laughs) for the long time. (laughs) And, And so, so it was, it was one of those crazy situations, but, um, uh, what was really special to me, though, was when I was leaving, uh, Adriana wrote me a personal letter, okay, before she knew what the verdict was going to be at all. Yeah. And she wrote, wrote me an extremely uh, heartfelt letter uh, that just touched me so much about how much um, I had meant to her that, you know, my involvement, uh, obviously, this applies to my whole team, but, you know, how much in particular, and that she just wanted to thank me and, uh, you know, come what may and yeah. that's her. I mean, lover, you know, I, I, you cannot, you know, caring is contagious. And I, as Jerry Spence says, you know, and there's a lot of truth to that, you know? Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit. I don't think we've discussed some of the, you ran focus groups on this case. Tell us what you, what you learned from the focus groups that you use for this, uh, this trial. Um, we, uh, we learned a lot um, and a lot of the issues were visual for us in terms of what, what is going to work, what is definitely sort of not going to work, what jurors are going to be issues because, oh, we're in federal court, no Vordire for us, mm-hmm. uh, no soup for you, you know? So, yeah. so we're, we're like no Vordire. So the best way to do Vordire in federal court for me is to do twice, three times the number of focus groups. Okay. Um, because what happens is at least you're understanding, okay, what is essentially what types of people are responding? Okay. To our arguments, what types of people are going to, are giving us a lot more pushback? Um, now it's not perfect. Um, and, uh, but it's way better than guessing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it did inform, uh, what choices we made with the questions and the questions that of course we submitted, uh, for the court. Uh, which in the court was not especially liberal uh, in terms of granting our questions. So, but we had to observe, and uh, and I think there's a, that matters so much more. Uh, you know, as as you've uh, you know, uh, Steve, we uh, you were at, at a seminar that I was teaching at uh, last fall, and uh, one of the things that's so important is is really being in the room. Okay, with people and and getting a feel for that and the fact that people are making decisions about you and what you're about long before you open your mouth. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, I think having having an appropriate emotional state that's conducive to what you're trying to do there and connect with people and really understand them without judgment um, is uh, it goes a long way. And they they pick up they pick up on that they're making observations. You're having to do that. We got good intelligence from the many focus groups that we had done. Um, I think there were some key issues. It did absolutely um, direct how our opening statement went, which I think is the most important thing you can do with a focus group is it's a, what they call an iterative process. You're getting successive approximations toward so-called bulletproof, at least as bulletproof as you can be. Yeah. So you get more and more, you get more and more feedback and you, you know, what's working, you know, what's not working and you change a variable at a time, but it's, um, uh, it, it, I think, I think it was hugely beneficial to us, particularly when we didn't get real Vordire. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, well, um, I really appreciate uh, the uh, discussion that we've been having. And, uh, and again, this is just fantastic work. Um, I wanted to ask you about something that I've seen you speak about, and this is not specific to this trial, although I think maybe you've used some of these techniques in this trial. But you um, have a different approach. I don't want to say a different approach. Uh, it, it, to way you, the way you take depositions of um, defendants or of uh, defense experts or of, say, corporate representatives. And it may be different from a lot of lawyers who sort of uh, just go into attack mode or just, you know, that I'm just going to tear this witness apart. That's not sort of your style. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that for a couple of minutes, just on your sort of impression on how you approach defense experts or defense witnesses or uh, 30B6 type witnesses. Well, actually, there is a there's a linkage to this case. Um, uh, and that was when I took Charles Marmar's deposition in New York. Um, because I am intensely curious about people. And so I, I look at it this way. I have to be in the right emotional state to connect with somebody. And I think that that is in that case, it was to be totally curious and fascinated. So I build that within myself even before I start. It's not, it's not an act I'm putting on. It's not a strategy I'm using just mentally. I have to feel it, okay? And if you feel it, um, they feel it. Okay, uh, you probably have heard about principles of what's called emotional contagion, how how a bad mood or or fear or these sorts of things spread can spread among people very quickly. Um, I think there's positive emotional contagion as well, and I think there's some good good research. Amy Cuddy's work is is part of that, but there's a whole lot more. But to getting back to brass tacks here, I start with the attitude of I'm. I'm truly interested in the well-being of the person I'm talking to, whether it's in Vordire or in a deposition. And if I'm truly interested in their well-being, they are going to perceive me differently than they will other lawyers um, because I'm really not giving off any red flags. Okay. I, I'm not, I'm not going through a, a mental checklist uh, very obviously in my mind. And, and so this becomes a conversation that becomes an in-depth conversation and not a confrontation, not a um, uh, cross-examination uh, and certainly not an interrogation. Okay. All the shuns I'm trying to avoid. I'm trying to shun the shuns for the most part. And, and so what, what I'm looking to do then is I want to connect with them. And I'm so curious about them. And experts are so right. You got a CV, you got their life story here. So let's talk about that. Doc, where'd medicine start with you? Okay. Why? You know, where's this come from? Who, who was the biggest factor in that? So what am I doing? I'm getting to learn about them as a human being. Um, it, the benefits it pays off are, is tremendous because over time, the deeper rapport you have with people, uh, the more difficult it is for them to lie uh, for the most part. And now sociopaths, psychopaths <laughs> excluded, okay? But we're not talking about a, a opposing counsel. We're talking about experts. Right, right. <laughs> so what, what I'm, I'm saying is I'm desperately interested in them, totally fascinated by them, and what happens is that the same questions that I fought years and years about, about, uh, you know, whatever rule type questions that we all get wound up in, that we were told that you better ask this in the first, you know, 90 minutes before the first mm -hmm. tape goes and they get woodshedded. doesn't matter. The woodshed doesn't work um, because ultimately I think what you're building is not credibility. It's trust. Okay. And trust folks is a feeling before it's anything else. 
can I trust this person? It's not, you're not going through a checklist of your trust checklist. You're going to say, okay, how do I feel about this person? Is this a thumbs up or a thumbs down? So I think you have to be totally genuine in doing it. But what happens is, obviously, I think it's in everybody's best interest and their to their well-being to tell me the truth. Okay. It's good for their soul. Let's let's help them, you know, un, uh, you know, unburden themselves. So um, but you have to feel it first. You have to go there first. And you then you take them through. It doesn't mean I do the same outlines. I do all this. I don't mean to be going long on this, but I, I, everything that I'd be interested in doing and interested in asking about, I sometimes will do later. But what's happening is, is that there's no resistance. In fact, the amazing thing is, is that even defense counsel change because it's like you've changed the frame of what's happening here. It's not something where they, they are on top of it. Uh, you know, waiting for you to say the wrong word and jump in there. Um, I, I think they become interested in the story to, to a certain degree, but it just becomes a different kind of experience. And it, I experienced that with Charles Marmar, uh, even when the defense counsel was like, you know, you're doing well, by the way, everybody, listen, you know, you're doing well. When they say, are we ever going to start talking about this case? Okay. <laughs> you, you, you know, something, something good has ha- has been happening so far when they do that. But we do, and and yet those questions are answered in a totally different way than they would have been in the first hour when when people are ready for for uh, for confrontation. So hopefully yeah. that helps a little bit. There's a lot. Joe Fried and I are going to be doing this for trial school. We've got a seminar coming up uh, probably in the next few months, and and it'll be in Atlanta actually. Yeah, nice, nice. Uh, so uh, we're really taking this and actually using depositions as as a model and taking this uh, to to the next level. Hopefully people will find it useful. It's been obviously very useful for us. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 interesting and it's definitely a, a, a different way than I would say a lot of lawyers approach uh, depositions um, and, um, and certainly uh, food for thought to uh, think about how you do your next deposition. So, um, well, I love I, it because I'm non-confrontational. Yeah. So I'm, I'm <laughs> right. like, sounds great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't have to be. And that, that's the wonderful part. You can be who you really are and still practice law. I mean, that's... Yeah thing you don't have to put on that the deposition um you know suit mental yeah, suit right which, yeah 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 and by the way you know uh, uh i i always recommend that you sit, seat that person at the head of the table uh you know where, where you're uh, 45 degree angle rather than across from you because that that speaks to confrontation i i think maybe you saw a, vid- a video what i had with an expert where he got so close to me because uh, he was so drawn into this conversation, our knees were were touching. <laughs> the geographer moved him back to the head of the table. <laughs> that was, that was uh, in Florida a couple of years back. So, uh, no, I, I love this. This is a much more satisfying way of practicing law. Well, uh, well, Chris, we really appreciate your time. Uh, I want to make sure, uh, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners about the Guzman versus the Boeing company uh, case that uh, resulted in a judgment of $2,271,000 um, before we let you go? I think, I, I think it was uh, an exercise in believing in your client. I think ultimately in an exercise in being faithful to your client and being able to tell their story, regardless of all of the all of the blockades, all of the burdens that are attempted to be placed on you, uh, this, I think this judge saw 
a lot more in this case than maybe she saw originally. Um, and part of the issue is being able to get there and tell help tell, help them tell their own story. Yeah, I know that just sounds so simplistic, but but ultimately, so so few of us. That's what takes the courage. You just mm-hmm. you have to be essentially emotionally naked. Um, and uh, but I I had a lot of fun. The jurors were great people. I wish I would have had a chance to to chat with them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will say, you know, about your client, I mean, you, you know, directing a client can be, um, I mean, can be one one of the most satisfying things, but it can also be one of the most difficult. Um, and it's, you know, you always want your client to be prepared, but you don't want to prepare them so much to the point that you scared the ever living daylights out of them. And then they get all stiff on that. You want them to be themselves. You want them to be authentic. This is exactly um, the point I was just making about yeah. taking the deposition. You can do your, you can have your client prepare that same way. You can yeah. have them, you can deal with their emotional state. You can uh, have them go back to a time in their life and they felt like super confident. Uh, and you you take them through that process and all of a sudden they're bulletproof. And I, one of the greatest examples I have of doing that kind of witness preparation was um, I had a football coach uh, who, who I had prepared. He was nervous, unbelievably nervous. Imagine a high school football coach, very nervous about being deposed uh, and, uh, he came through it with flying colors. And of course they'd had a losing season the year before and he's the new coach and they'd lost every game up to homecoming, I think. And he showed the same, the same exercises to his players and they came through and won. they became champions <laughs> in this process. It gave them confidence that they didn't have before. So, uh, I love this in terms of preparing our clients as well. Very nice. So, so Chris Stambaugh, not only uh, excellent trial lawyer, but sports consultant, sports (laughs) psychology consultant. Accidental. Accidental. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, Chris, we really appreciate your time. And I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Chris Stambaugh. You can uh, look him up at DiCelloLevitt.com. That's D-I-C-E-L-L-O-L-E-V-I-T-T.com. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yvonne. Such such a nice uh, pleasure to see you. And uh, what a wonderful podcast you have. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. 
Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>